Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, we'll answer you the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you this time from the wilds of Montana. Yes, I'm up here uh, near beautiful Dayton, Montana for the uh, Seb Holzer Seminar, and it has really been amazing. And I'm up here with one of my favorite people, and that's Paul Wheaton. So today we're doing a special broadcast. We won't have the typical uh, long introduction with all the housekeeping and all. Just a real quick reminder, though, that while I'm up here, uh, the Member Support Brigade uh, is available to people who are not yet members for their first year for only $35 using the discount code Big Sky. So if you haven't heard that yet and you've tuned in because this is a special edition, uh, know that you can still get that discount through Sunday. Those that pay by mail uh, can do so and uh, write on the uh, the form, and we will honor the discount. That way, those that pay with silver by mail, you can uh, expect to get more time instead of pay with less silver. Uh, with that, that's all the housekeeping that we're going to do today because this is really cool, and we're actually like at a lunch break right now, and uh, Paul and I need to like do this and beat feet back over so we continue uh, can continue to learn from Sep. And with that, hey, Paul, welcome back to the Survival Podcast, man. It's good to actually be with you here in Montana. That's Yeah, um, right, in Dayton. We're, we're, we're both uh, shacked up at the same place with Bill here and uh, hanging out with Sep, just uh, taking it easy. You know, oh, that's right. You weren't here that night when Sep came over for dinner. Yeah, jerk. <laughs> you really, you guys are both jerks, man, because... Like, I saw that picture, and I thought, like, oh, this is what Sep does. He comes and hangs out at Bill's place. And, mm-hmm. like, I'll be up here for, like, a week hanging with Sep. And I get to hang with Sep at the seminar, but he has not returned to the roost here. <laughs> you know, the important thing to point out is Sep loves me more than he loves I, you. I, I, I have surmised that. But <laughs> I just think it's because you're, like, you've met him first, and he knows what you do, and he doesn't really know what I do yet. So we'll see. Maybe one day I'll become the favorite child. But for now, <laughs> you have the honor. <laughs> So I, I, I was visiting with the interpreters, and they were saying that on the plane over, he was talking about me, and, and then he told me that he thought I was the number one permaculture guy in the United States. And he says he'll say that on any kind of recording device, but of course, he's so swamped. It's like, I don't know if I'll ever get to record anything with him again. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll see. It's, it's like uh, this ongoing day, and day after day after day, and you just really don't get time with him. Well, he wants you to go to Russia, so maybe you could get him to say it in Russian. Yeah, maybe when as we're sitting Russia. on the plane next to each other, we can like, okay, how about now? Yes. Is now good? Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I wanted to kind of chat with you about your interpretations of some of the things we've seen, your thoughts, uh, some of the things that we've seen so far. So what's like one of the things out of this week so far that kind of really sticks out to you? That I got sick. <laughs> I mean about the seminar. Oh, oh, oh a substance that people, <laughs> yes, yes, people yes, listening yes. to this might care about. No one cares that you were sick except me. I care, but lots <laughs> yeah. of people out there don't care. You don't care. Just <laughs> say that, man. All right. Um, I, I've, there, there have been, uh, I mean, about 95% of it I already know. I mean, either from reading his books or more dominantly from three years ago. Um, but there have been a couple of little tidbits and, and, uh, there, there's there's also been a couple of times where it's like uh, uh, I I I know what he means to say, but the message that comes through the interpreter I feel like isn't it, it's very vague, and I feel like people get the wrong. So then I know there have been a couple of times when I you know waved my hand up and I I said I want to ask a very exact question yes. to try and nail him down. And so like for example the tomato one. Remember the tomato question? 
Um, and and I, I did it because he was saying, oh, transplant. Here's how you transplant stuff and everything. Sure. So then it's like uh, he ended up talking about trans- – I'm thinking, okay, people are getting the wrong idea. They think that SEP is like keen on transplanting. And so I said, okay, SEP, here's the deal. Here's what I've been telling people. And I've been telling people that, uh, number one, the number one thing to do is let the plants um, reseed themselves. Number two, direct seed. And number three, avoid transplanting whenever possible. Number four, do it when there's no other choice. Yeah, so, and then he verified that. He okay. just said, yes, that's it. That's correct. Okay. And it's like, but, the, but then after 20 minutes of him talking about transplanting, that was never clear. Yeah. So I felt that that was an important one to convey. And I think that there's definitely that kind of like a language barrier. And sometimes I wonder if we ask a question and then we either get beat up by the master or we don't really get an answer. If it's not really the master not explaining it, but the translator not quite pulling off the translation. Right. I mean, I, I, uh, I kind of wonder about that because Sep, Sep kind of gives the translator a moment to translate. And if you can't get it through, he's moving forward. Yeah, he's going to talk he, about he, something. He's got his pace, and he's not going to be slowed down by a translator. And the, you can kind of see once in a while the translators are like, what's the word for? And it's like, ah, too late. <laughs> Whatever that was, it's gone. You know, one of the things that blew me away, a question you asked. You asked, like, how much should, you know, Katerina be able to make on the farm? She's got, like, what, 90 or 100 acres or something like that. And you said, do you think that, <laughs> that, that, that she should be able to make, let's say, at least a half a million dollars? And most farmers with 90 acres aren't making crap near that and his response was i would be very disappointed if i only made a half a million dollars here yeah something like that i mean i i spent uh, a lot of time crafting that question you know um and then in fact i think i asked the question originally wrong and i said how much and then i i kind of like at some point after hearing 10 minutes worth i um i said okay i want to ask do you think that um, a, a, a student of Sepulcher could, on this piece of land, which is 94 acres, yep. do you think that, that they could earn uh, half a million dollars a year? And I think his response was something along the lines of, at least, yeah. at least at that least. much. He, and he said it would be a failure, right? That that's like, you, you know, like you should do better. Like half a million would be lame. Well, what he actually said was that his, his land, the, the, what is it, the Kermaterhof, yeah. right, that, that they, spent, they pay almost that much in taxes. Oh, they pay. They do. They, <laughs> they pay, pay that, that much, much in taxes. Just in taxes. In taxes. So, right. Right. So, so clearly, if you're paying a half a million in taxes, you're making more than that. And his, I think his operation is similar in in land size, isn't it? It's like he's oh, got about 120, 120 acres. 120 acres. Or so. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And very similar climate. Right. Very very. Right. So I think it's like he's in his element here as far as the climate goes. Right. Right. We are at almost exactly the same latitude. Um, and in fact, here in Dayton, Montana, we're at about almost exactly the same elevation. Really, I thought he was higher, but that's, now, if that's we cool. were in Missoula, which yeah. is lower than here, yeah. then yeah, it would be higher than Missoula. But what's really cool here is we've got this huge lake, and as Bill told us, this actually creates a microclimate here, and this is Zone Five, where most of the rest of Montana is Zone Four. Welcome so that's to kind the, of cool. Welcome to the Banana Belt of Montana. The Banana Belt of Montana, <laughs> full of lake trout, huckleberries, and really good microbrew beers. <laughs> yeah, everything everything here is about the huckleberry. <laughs> Although here at Flathead Lake, it's also about the Flathead Cherry, because in most of Montana, it's difficult to grow cherries, but. All around uh, the lake, you see uh, cherry orchards everywhere. Well, and they're growing wild, too. We have a whole bunch of old-growth ones that are just 
growing all over the back of right. Bill's property here, so that's kind of cool. So while flathead cherries are indeed delicious, they are, they don't hold a candle to huckleberries. Yes. And so huckleberry. well, you had huckleberry buffalo stick yesterday that I got. For I, you. I thought that was really good. That was uh, awesome. Good. Yeah, that was awesome. So you've been you've been hitting all the huckleberry fun things. Huckleberry buffalo sticks, huckleberry uh, beer, but I have not yet had a huckleberry shake because it's highly. Non paleo, <laughs> but Bill keeps telling me like go get one for Dorothy and just try it. And then I know if I try it, I'm gonna eat the whole damn thing and ruin all. You're gonna feel shitty all. for yes. like two or three days. Correct, correct. You yeah. might as well have some huckleberry taffy. Uh, the, the huckleberry pretzels are really. What good. about huckleberry pie? I mean, I know that would be like in a in a Paul Wheaton sweet spot, wouldn't it? They they <laughs> typically serve that only seasonally. But I got to tell you that I managed to score a bag of frozen huckleberries from somebody, and uh, gave them to to a pie master, and was able to consume huckleberry pie, and it was awesome and fantastic. Because <laughs> somehow when the huckleberries were on, the huckleberries were on late this last year. And so I went high and far, and I could not get a huckleberry pie to save my life. And then, you know, and really the solution is, well, go out and pick some damn huckleberries. Well, yeah. And, but then there's that step of, like, then you take the huckleberries and convert them into the, the lusciousness of pie. But, uh, but I have not been pie deficient. There no. have been many, many no. people who have made sure that I have ample pie. Oh, and then we got invited out to something a couple of nights ago. And uh, Scout um, uh, made uh, two pies. Because I was coming over, um, Livia is her name from Portland, and uh, she's been here for all of the PDC, and she's here for all of the SEP stuff. And she made a an apple pie, and she made a mixed berry pie, which did include huckleberries. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so that was uh, yeah. And I believe I believe I ate them while you were sitting on the couch there, and uh, and, and enjoyed a piece of each. But I, I can't remember what was. Was Jack here that day? I was enjoying that pie. You admitted to eating so. apple pie, but you'd never said anything about uh, about the huckleberry pie. So it could have been that you were hiding your huckleberries. I'm glad to tell you about the mixed berry pie <laughs> after, after I you ate, ate it. it. Okay, because as was pointed out, as I was consuming it, that if I shared any of it, I would have less. Yes, yes. <laughs> let's let's get back onto the oh, right. thing, though. Yeah, because so that right. was an important topic. Yeah, huckleberries are always good talk about stuff. pie in every show. Yeah, <laughs> but, all right. So then uh, the half a million dollar thing, um, uh, the next one was is on the day that I was sick. I mean, there was one day that I missed because I was sick, and I've been going back, and I've been trying to take it easy and get better, and, um, and, and I, but I, I only missed one day, and the rest of the day I'm kind of a vegetable there, but, uh, or the rest of the time. But there's, uh, on the one day that I missed, you guys were telling me the story of like, oh, you missed the most awesome and amazing thing in the world. And so tell tell me the story again, Jack. Yeah, it was a really pissed off Austrian tearing <laughs> apart a tree. So uh, Katerina or one of her people went down to a local market here and got you know typical grafted fruit trees like you buy. And I don't think that alone was really a big problem. Sepp was like, it's not the best choice, but it's okay. It was the trees themselves, and they were packed in sawdust. So he picks it up, and God, I wish he spoke German, because I know something was lost in translation of the words, but the actions were absolutely clear. So he starts snapping at it first, and he's pointing at the picture on the bag, and he's basically, and the one word I know out of all the German he's saying is kaputt for dead and supermarket. Because supermarket's <laughs> remarkably similar, right? So I know he's saying the supermarket tree is kaputt. 
And he's snapping out about it, and then he opens it up, and then he holds the bag up, and he shows the picture, and he's like, you see the fruit on the picture. People look at this and go, oh, it's good fruit because it says so on the picture. And basically, he was using a version of your thing, that's just marketing. <laughs> so then he takes the sawdust down, and he shows the sawdust is moist. The sawdust is actually very, very moist. But the tree is dead, and he proves that by he starts at the very tips, and he's snapping the tips off. Where you're going, well, sometimes the tips die, and you prune it back. But then he's like just smashing the tree, and he's getting angrier and angrier, and he's calling it a fraud, and basically the people that did it should be beaten and burned at the stake or something. <laughs> he was very upset, and when he threw it in the air, it looked like dust, and he's like, you could make a fire with it. This is kindling. And then he explained that the sawdust is a medium for the fruit tree roots, will literally suck the moisture out of the tree instead of providing it to the tree. And you should never, ever, 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 ever buy a supermarket tree packed in sawdust. And if you do, you're basically a brain-dead idiot. And don't do that ever again. And uh, he made a really good case for it. And of course, we put all the trees in the truck, and they went back. My suggestion, because some people were videoing this, is when you go back to the store, take somebody's smartphone, and show Snap snapping out, And say, if you don't give me a refund, this man's coming here, and, he, and he's going to stand in front of your store and smash your trees. And I think she got a refund. But it was actually a good education because um, he looked at them a little bit differently because some of them weren't as bad as the one he picked. But he was showing you how you could like, basically feel the bark. And just by feeling the bark, you could tell that it wasn't dead yet. But it, a lot of damage had been done. And I know this. I'll never buy a tree packed in sawdust again just because he might find out and be mad at me. <laughs> Seth will track you down. But, Seth I mean, knows. The upshot was the best thing to do would be dig up local well-started trees that are already well-started. If you're going to bring them into a new environment or grow trees from seed or get really well-developed Uh, if you're going to use grafted rice, really well-developed, well-cared-for trees that haven't been in a container too long. And he actually went into a big uh, talk. I think you were there for this about, you know, if they're in the, the container too long, the roots will circle. Oh, yeah. And then they don't go out deep. But he actually left something out that I think it's really important that people know about. It's called circling and girdling root syndrome. Right. Where the, the, where the roots uh, will circle the tree, and the tree might look happy for five years. And eventually the trunk of the tree will grow into the root. And it'll do the same thing as if you wrapped a wire around it. He didn't, I'm sure he knows that, but he didn't mention it. Yeah. I mean, now we're talking about stuff that's like standard master gardener knowledge. Yeah. Versus, I mean, that was, and that's kind of like another topic that we've wanted to kind of talk about is that we've, there have been like about one question out of four or five. It's like, really, do we have to ask that question? Because, I mean, here we, we've got Sepp Holzer here. Can we talk about something a little? Read the book. Well, know? yeah. I mean, I'm looking at it. If you're going to... If you're going to a PDC or a Master Gardener class or a basic workshop, fine. If you want to show up not knowing shit, fine. You're there to learn, fine. When you go to see Seth Holzer or I'd put other people in this like, like Jeff Lawton or Bill Mollison, read their books, watch their videos, know their basics because I feel like some of the people here are coming to Einstein and saying, please teach me to do long division. <laughs> and he's like, no. Right? It's ironic. They're both German, no, right? No, he's like, doing it. Yeah. He's answering he's their answering question, it. but he's rolling his eyes and getting you, pissed. You can tell he's not happy to be asked, how do I you know, multiply 40 by 3 <laughs> and show my work? Right? Because he's here with this project that's so beyond the scope of even what I thought it was. And I feel like you, like most of the things he's talking about, I already know because it's so well documented in his work. Seeing the design be developed. 
That's what I'm learning from. And I think a lot of people are struggling with that because they're back on page one, you know, of the PDC instead of on the advanced stuff that he's already documented. And he keeps saying, in my book, in my book, in my book. As though I thought that you people that would come here and pay lots of money to see me would have maybe invested 30 bucks in the book first. Right? <laughs> you know? And, and I think that it's not just permaculture. It's anything you're going that's an advanced training and you've got an advanced teacher that's documented their work, it would behoove you to at least have a basic understanding of their base work before you show up because then you're like, you're holding the rest of the class back, you know, and you're also yeah. irritating the teacher. Well, and I, I kind of feel like, you know, Sepp is now, you know, in this, in this space where he kind of figures that what a bunch of fucking idiots and, um, <laughs> and it's like, uh, uh, you know, so now, now I've got to teach at this much lower level. And and uh, and because these guys just don't have what it takes to be able to understand the more advanced stuff. But there's a lot of us going, no, 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 give but, me. The, but he doesn't hear us because they keep talking. And I yeah, think maybe yeah. we should Google culture them. Yeah. If we build another bed with all of the, no, we shouldn't do that. I'm kidding. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> huh, okay. <laughs> Not a bad. Uh, it's, it's something Sepp, to think about. Sepp, Sepp, can you can you build a Google culture with human beings? You know, I mean, no, <laughs> no. Bone sauce. I think bone, bone sauce. sauce. We yeah, could do that. We could do that. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, you know, on the point of, of you were saying something about like, where to get your stuff. There's a guy. It turns out to be in Dayton, like just a mile away, has this acre of just packed to the gills. Yes. Of all kinds of stuff. And so we're currently getting all kinds of raspberries from his land, all kinds of stuff. And so I went over there. Uh, somebody said, you got to go see it. And I was like feeling a little low, a little sick still. And so, but I'm going to go make some video. I'm going to go, you know, take it easy. It's sunny, warm day. Yeah. Um, and uh, people are, we're, this guy is just donating tons of little baby fruit trees and um, all, all kinds of plants and all kinds of stuff I mean, to be transplanted. thousands and thousands of dollars if you went to buy this stuff. And he's giving it away. Right. Because he's just cool. He's cool, and I think there's two things that he's blown away by. One, he came over and saw the size of the project, and he went, holy crap, I can't believe this. But two, this is what a lot of people, I haven't got to talk to him yet, but a lot of these people that are here have told me, there's a lot of people here that are in their early 20s, and he is blown away that young people are actually doing this stuff. This right. guy's a guy that you know came back from Vietnam. He's been living on like six grand a year on his little place down there by the lake, and, and he's been growing his own food. And he felt like he's all alone. And like seeing this makes him realize like this is a movement. This mm -hmm. is a real movement. And young people, not just a bunch of old farts like us, but yeah. young people are actively involved in doing this stuff. These are my peeps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like seventy some odd years old. And yeah. I think for him, it's like like he was just floored. That there's you know 22, 23, 24 year old kids taking time out of their life to come here and learn this, participate, and do this, um, and that was really like almost like a manifestation because Katarina's going, oh my god, I didn't know I was going to get like these giant, long, huge hugel beds. What am I going to plant it all? And then like this guy's there and they're getting a little bit of stuff. When he sees, he's like, yeah, I'll just fill you up. And I mean, like that's like really not something you expect to happen. You don't plan on that. But when it happens, there's something really special kind of going on there. So I've got two points to convey from my trip over there. And, and one point is is that uh, he had a, a bunch of apple trees there that he started from seed. And he says, yeah, I'm eating this really delicious apple. And I'm thinking, man, this is good. I want some more of these. <clears throat> and so he just shoves the seeds in the ground. Up pops a tree. 
and now he eats those apples and it's like not this exactly the same as the parent of course like no one's exactly the same, same as her mom correct and and uh but it's still a very delicious apple and he's been very happy and he's got like seven or eight different apple trees on his land that were started from seed and um, I think I think most of them the fruit is either excellent or good, and he says there's one or two where the the quality was poor or awful, and, uh, and then he's like oh, I'll just take it out, you know the the ones that are awful I'll just hack them out and something else. I'll grow something there. else yeah. there, yeah. And I mean and, I also think he's like really jazzed about like he's giving away all these raspberry canes, and he's like but there's still some left and I'll just grow back. So I can give them away to you, and I really haven't done anything yeah. from my side yeah. because they're just going to come back. Yeah, yeah. The other point is it has to do with dumb questions. And, oh. And so I was there. I wasn't feeling really good. And the wind's blowing hard. And so this, this young fellow's there, and he asks me the question. He's like, okay, hey, Paul, suppose I've got this drain field. I've got a septic tank with uh -huh. a drain field. And the, the drain field is immense. It's really, really huge. Yes. And, of course, everything's flat over there. And there's just some you know weeds and grass growing there mm -hmm. and everything. And he says... I want to I want to build a full sep sized hugelkultur bed, six feet, six and a half feet, seven feet tall. Yeah. On this drain field. Yeah. And I said, no, no, uh, you don't want to do that because the the drain field has to be eighteen inches from the surface, so it's buried at just the right level. Correct. And his response was, yeah, I don't believe that. <laughs> well, why do you ask you the question? I mean, that's you know, the, if you're not willing to accept the answer, why do you ask the question? Well, and that was, you know, I was a little surprised myself. So then uh, Dale was standing right there, and, and Dale says, Paul, Paul is right. So then we proceeded to explain about how you needed to get aerobic activity and, and yeah. saw the bacteria. Like what actually it does? So we're, we're explaining it to him, and he's like, still doesn't believe it. And then, we, and then George is there, and then George says, Paul is right, and then yeah. think of it this way. Still doesn't believe it. Then today, he asks the question of Sep, and Sep's like, no, no, no. Don't even use a drain field like that. Yeah. You need to use something that's basically a gray water system type of thing. Yeah. And um, it's like won't even won't even address the the question. Yeah, thinks, like this is the this whole is, idea of having is, a drain field is so wrong. Yeah. Nine. And, yeah. Right. And and so it's like uh, so I, I'm just thinking like because um, um, that was in hindsight because I because the thing is because the wind was blowing I like really wore out my throat and the throat's the thing that's killing me with it being sick and I'm just kind of thinking man can we just just you know, yeah. Why don't you believe me? Why did you ask me the question if you're not going to believe me? Sure, sure. So um, I should have just left it at that. Well, fine then. You don't believe me. That's that's cool, man. Just don't believe me. But you tried to help him. I tried. Yeah, and, that always and, sucks. And, yeah, so <laughs> yeah, I, I need to I need to stop helping people. You need to help willing people. You can't help. Yeah, there the you go. Willing, you there know? you go. I call it dragging people across the finish line. I don't do that. You know, I, I should help people who uh, who trust my who trust stuff. You. They, yes. they they think. Paul has a lot of authority and experience. I'm going to trust what Paul says. And I'm sure, like me, you don't mind being questioned as a teacher, <laughs> but when you're asked a flat question, you give a flat answer to simply say, no, I don't believe it. You know, that's kind of like, why then did you bother? Yeah, me? yeah. You know? I, I, Especially so, not something that concrete. I mean, you're clearly right because that's how it works. All right, last point, and we've okay. got to get back to what's going on. Uh, the last note I've got here, uh, just just for now, because my big notes are there. I okay. Left them there. Uh, the size of the Hugel culture bed. Uh, you could tell somebody a meter and a half. You could know what a meter and a half looks like until you walk in between them. You don't really get the size and the angle, the steep 70 degree angles is, uh, it's pretty impressive. And then the other thing I think you can't really understand until you, and it's not one, right? It's multiples in the way they're curved and bent around each other. It's this like outdoor living room effect. 
Like when you walk through there, you feel and like when they first built them, they were just as big and they were done, but it was all muddy and mucky and nasty and a couple days of planning and putting trellises on them and, and, and making them start to dry out and look better and you can walk without walking in the muck. And now you feel like you're walking into something special. And my thought is, what's it going to be like in six months when all of that stuff uh, goes in? You know, and it's I'll, framed I'll pop from up and that. take pictures. Yeah, and it's it's framed from the house. Like he's done it so that Katarina's house is kind of shielded from the road, and they kind of close off at the end. But from her house, you're looking into it with this beautiful lake and these other high beds on the other side of the lake. And you can't. I mean, I'll take pictures. I'll post stuff when I get back. But I don't think a person is really going to comprehend the size and the scope of the project without standing in the middle of it. And it makes a lot of the stuff you read in his book make so much more sense. And you understand why when you're building your little three-foot hugel beds at home, it's not that they don't work, but they're not going to do what his do. They're, so work is a relative term, right? If I can if I can put my, my tomatoes and peppers and stuff in there and I can water one time through the entire summer, it's clearly worked. But it hasn't done what Sepp Helzer does. One of the one of the Traco operators talked to me before Sepp arrived and, and was asking me what it would be like. And I, and I said... Okay, I've 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 seen SEP with Traco operators before, and and if you don't, if you get it just slightly wrong, he will get livid, pissed. Yes, and and yes. so there there's really uh, two things that you need to make sure that you do, and and in order because I've also seen him fall in love with Traco operators, <laughs> and and so uh, here's here's the here's the big secret. One, you got to make the sides of the hugelkultur beds really steep. Correct. Two, you got to get it really tall. Yeah. So so basically, you're going to prove your expertise at being able to stack wood and dirt really tall and thin. Yes. And, and it's like if you can do that, then then he's because most of them they start off making them like too thick at the bottom and that the slopes are too shallow. But no, this is hugel culture. This is not building a dam. Building a dam, you need a, a shallow slope. So it's like if if you can do that, he will think you are the most supreme expert driver there is. And and then he'll be your buddy, um, which really isn't which, hard to do. It's which, hard for the operator to allow themselves to do, but it's really not difficult if you can run up a traco. You can build a hugel bed properly, but I think a lot of them they're probably thinking, I don't know why the hell I'm making this big pointed thing. And when you first start building them, they kind of look ugly. And when yeah. there's like ten of them together and they're all incorporated, you go, this is amazing. And that place he built this stuff in, when people started showing up there, it was a swamp. And now there's this big open water feature, and there's this giant, all the way I can describe is a giant series of outdoor rooms. And it's creating all these microclimates. And the ones he's building there are actually, I think they're a little bit bigger than a meter and a half. They're, he said they're perfect for you to use. They're, they're a little <laughs> taller than yeah. me. I'm two meters tall. I'm almost two, two meters, meters tall. tall. Yeah. So these are, but, but then the other side is, is that during part of the planning, the top will be smushed down a little bit. Okay. But, um, um, and then I, I also think that they're going to, uh, as they rot a little bit, they should get a little shorter as the insides rot a little bit. But Sepp Holzer told me um, uh, when I was, I was he made driving, you sad, didn't when, he? When I was driving <laughs> over here with with him when he's coming over for dinner, so this is before you arrived. Yes, uh, I I mentioned something about that, and he's like, "No, if if your hugel bed, if your hugel culture beds get shorter because it's uh, the decomposition inside, you've built it wrong." And he told you you're using too much wood, didn't he? He did he too did. much wood. When he was here, I showed him I showed him my hugel culture article, and he looked at that first picture, and he he says too much wood. Wow, um, and but you know when you look at the picture too, it it it, it is kind of like how are you ever going to get your wood stacked that neatly True. inside? 
True. And so, I, I mean, but the idea is, you know, when the picture was made, the idea was to show that there's soil touching all the wood and, and that there's a lot of wood on the inside Correct. and then a thick layer of soil on the outside. On the so, um, you know, I agree. He, yeah. He's right. Too much wood. Now, what, Good luck getting that much wood in a hugelkultur bed. Now, what I wish everybody in my audience that keeps going, can I use ash? Can I use this? Can I use that? I, would, would, I wish they could be here because basically the stuff that was there, they smashed it down, piled it up, and used it. Like They used everything. It was none yeah. of this like, well, that wood's really not suitable, and this is a piece of oak, or that's a piece of ash, or this is going to decompose too, too quickly. It was like a polyculture hugelkultur. It was like every tree that was there, if it's there, it's going in the bed. Right. And they just did it, and they didn't. He didn't worry about it. He, I didn't see him up, like going, "Oh, I can't use this piece of tree, or this one's too fat, or this one's too skinny." He just basically knew how big he wanted the pile to be, and he just did it. And I think that that's a big lesson for people in not just hula culture, but all the permaculture stuff. Follow your gut, do it. If it doesn't work, observe, interact, and change it the next time. You're right. not you're not buying whole life insurance when you plant a bed. You can change it later if you're not happy with the results. Right. So then um, another interesting thing uh, that, that you mentioned, you, you wanted me to put on the list here, is uh, trees and nails. Yeah, yeah. Um, I built like, like a micro hugel bed, uh, I think culture would call it, because it was only about maybe a meter high. But I did the steep banks, and I'm starting to have erosion issues, right? So how do you fix that? Well, you cut down a bunch of trees, and you make nails, as he calls them, which are basically like a like a, a fork stick that are like a tent peg, right? Yeah, a tent stick is what and, I think And you just this. stack your trees on there, and then you peg them into the side of the hugel bed. You plant even more stuff in there, and then you have like a natural trellis, plus you control your erosion. You mulch over top of it. And I think that is going to help a lot of people, especially with poor quality soils like I have. Because here he said, you don't really have to do it. It would be a good idea. But in places where you have poor quality soils and this erosion is a problem, this will stop it cold. And it'll make this wonderful blanket. And if you plant any kind of vining crop low, it'll go straight up and it makes a trellis. And it's, it's really awesome. And it's really simple to do. I mean, you harvest some trees and, you know, you, you turn them into a resource. All right. We good? We got anything else? Um, no, except that I, I would reiterate, if you ever get a chance like this to take it, um, even though I feel like you and I feel like I've known a lot of what's been said, um, it was worth every bit of the trip up here because until I saw it, I really couldn't conceive of it. Uh, being a big student of Jeff Lawton's, I could walk out on that property before anything was done and I could go, Jeff Lawton would have, and boom, 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 and the swales and how they would connect. If I walked it out, if I would have walked out there last week, and you said, what would Sepp Holzer do? I really wouldn't have known. Now I do. I, he's, he's, you know what? I had some good ideas about what he was going to do, and I thought I had it pretty well pegged. Because um, you've been through it before. Well, sort I've been of. through it before, and so I've, you know, I've studied his stuff a long time, and you know, uh, he and I have done a lot of talking in the past. And so it's, it's like I feel like I, I – plus the other thing is, in his mind, I'm the number one permaculture guy in the USA. <laughs> So, uh, but so I, I went on the land thinking, okay, I, I know what he's going to do. Yeah, I, I can predict very. I well could have done this myself. Do. I, yeah, I know what's going. I know what's going to happen. And it turns out that I was wrong. And like, uh, I, I would not, I would not have had the nads to try and uh, build as big of a lake as he's building. Yeah, he's and it's like uh, you're talking about the, the lake that they just started on yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're over there standing in the mud today, um, uh, and so. Uh, I, I would not have uh, tried something that large, and and he's 
But his, his mission is, is he's trying to build something that's a, a, a lake as opposed to a pond. It's probably going to be something on the order of like two or three acres. Yes. And, um, uh, and he wants to be very, very, very deep. And, and his purpose is, is that he wants to make it so that the water surface in the wintertime never freezes because it's so deep. Um, and what happens is, is that the water at the bottom will be 54 degrees because that's the temperature, temperature of the earth when it's that low. Uh, and, and then the, when the surface is like freezing, then the water starts to circulate Correct. inside of the body of water. And you'll get ice, but you will not get ice across the entirety of the lake. There'll right. always be ice-free zones is what ice he's going for. Dominantly around the edges, you'll yeah. have ice. And, um, uh, so then basically then it's throwing off this 54 degree heat which then heats the plants around it. So you kind of have created um, a pretty intense microclimate. Absolutely. And and so you can now do more interesting things. And so that's kind of what he's shooting for. Um, I, I'm um, just kind of... Uh, and he did he did get all the okie-dokies and permissions from the local government in order to be able to do this. So he's doing it. Yeah. Um, uh, I just would not have been as bold. I would have gone for smaller stuff. But... He's going to have a, a, a bigger impact. And I think the, the last thing we should finish up with is even though you and I are blown away by the scale, he's not doing what he would have done if it was his land. He would have oh, gone right. so much bigger. He's, the excavator is too bigger. small. There's a 20-ton excavator. Too small. 30-ton uh, excavator. Eh, it's better, but imagine if it was twice as big. And ima- you know, The morning that the excavator showed up, I, I said, these are way too small. <laughs> Seth is yeah. going to be pissed. And sure enough, he got there, and he was. He is. He was like, you know, and and throughout the the stuff, he, every day he kind of says, "These are so ridiculously small." Oh, yeah. What do you think we're going to do? Oh, oh, that was a thing. That was an interesting thing. We had uh, somebody there who became really upset at the idea that a tree was being taken out. Oh yes. And it's like, oh, we're going to build a pond here. What the hell did you think was going to happen to the tree that's out in the middle where the pond is going? Well, what I loved was his response when he finally addressed that later on in the day. He said, look at how sick this land is. Look how many animals are suffering. Look how the land is suffering. And you sometimes, basically... I'm putting my words into it now, but what I took away from it was if you're a, if you're my patient and I'm your doctor and you have gangrene, I have to cut the gangrene off. Yeah. But but then imagine what what will happen once I heal it, yeah. and then you can go forward. And it was really cool. He's building a jungle there. It's going to be a jungle where it was just like this dried up grass before. Yeah, and this little Except- clump of. Crap trees, trees that you could literally push over, you know, yourself. Honestly, Sepp Holzer has an intense romance with nature. And Sep and nature are creating symphonies in seed and soil. And and this is part of it. Nature is grooving on what he's doing. Now, it doesn't look good right now, but it's like, you know, it is a masterpiece. And it will be, he is the artist, and we will see what is in his brain year, in the years to come. And it will be magnificent. I'm I'm certain of it. Well, my thing is, I think this will be the first thing like this ever done in the United States. And I think people will come here to see it in mass. And then I'm, my hope is that will create like an infection where other people will do this. Because what I'm seeing here is not really designed for me to do on my five acres or 20 acres. You could do it maybe on 20. But this is designed for the farmer. This is designed for somebody that wants to make a living with this. This is somebody who wants to create a brand. And that's how he thinks. He was telling Katarina, I think I would have a logo. I would have a brand. I would have a name. And I would market the heck out of this. And this can be your livelihood here. Right. And I think it can. And I think that it will inspire many people to do that. And I will probably come back up here just to see what it looks like a year from now. Well, I, I think Sepp's, uh, Sepp's passion for, for, what, for this path 
is uh, I mean, very is is immense. And I think uh, I think Katarina's passion is is a different flavor. Yeah. So what we're going to end up seeing is we're going to see um, not a full scale sepification. Correct. But you're going to see a taste of sep. And a beautiful test bed, an absolutely artistic, oh. beautiful test bed that will prove it works. And I think that's what other people need to see. They don't need to just see like a picture of it. They need to see it function. And once you see something work, you think, oh, well, I can do that. And, and a person that comes out there and sees like 10% of her land done this way and realizes they're, she's getting more production off that than the entirety of, all, of their whole realizes, so I can go do this on all my land. And uh, there's a learning curve, but I think that uh, I think we're in the right, right track now. And it's, I'm grateful he came here and did this. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Paul Wheat, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.